Hi, welcome to Choose Wisely, a podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. I'm Caroline Nelson, a rancher and a shepherd in Montana, and as always, I'm here to gently, lovingly disrupt your existing beliefs about food and the environment using solid data and primary sources. Today's episode is much requested, pesticides. So we're going to get right into it because this is one where you're going to want to settle in, grab a snack, a fruit or a vegetable perhaps that you've washed thoroughly. (laughs) Pesticide, the term pesticide itself, it's a general broad term. So I didn't know this before I started diving into this topic. Pesticide, I thought, was a synonym for insecticide, like a spray that kills insects. But no, it's the umbrella term over herbicide, insecticide, fungicides, and more. All the isides, they're all grouped under the term pesticide. Sometimes within agriculture, we tend to not use the word that has been most commonly bandied about or potentially villainized outside of agricultural industry. So within ag, you don't hear the word pesticide that much. You are more likely to hear pest management integrated pest management, crop management. Sometimes we just call it chemical. A farmer, you might say like, I got to go pick up some chemical. You're not going to be like, just heading to the store to pick up some pesticides. (laughs) That's just not really how farmers talk. And I don't know if that's because these words have been villainized, that we've found new ones, or just because it's kind of insider industry speak that like every industry has. We also see this in the cattle industry around the word feedlot. So some people I follow who might work on feedlots or have expertise around feedlots, they will often not hardly use the term. They call them the yards or feed yards. Again, I'm not sure if that's on purpose, but yeah, sometimes within the industry, we just use different language, but I'm going to use the mainstream word pesticide today. And before we fully get into it, I just want to warn you I might not tell you what you want to hear today. I didn't tell myself what I wanted to hear today. (laughs) Sorry in advance. I, I hope, let's just take a minute. Let's try to put our preconceived notions aside and just open ourselves up to walking away more informed and feeling calmer about our food system in general, regardless of your kind of baseline feelings, because I feel like knowledge is always power. And I always, I always feel calmer when I dig into the data. I want to give you one more caveat before I start diving into just all the information and I start to spray you like a fire hose with facts. That's a reminder that studies, like just because someone says, I read in a study, like all studies are not created equal. There's a lot of, unfortunately, junk science out there, which I didn't know until I started reading the studies for myself. It's been a real bummer (laughs) for me to realize that. If you really want to hear a breakdown about like what makes a quality study and what doesn't, I recommend listening to the episode of Choose Wisely called Does Meat Cause Cancer? I really get into the weeds on it and how sort of overblown associations can lead to kind of shoddy, careless, journalistic headlines that then can create kind of a cultural consensus, even if the facts aren't really 
there. When I was researching that episode, I was blown away by how poor the association between meat and cancer is, like how completely overhyped it is because I had heard it so much. I was like, this is fact. This is like set in stone, like carve it, (laughs) carve it on the mountain. Like meat causes cancer. I mean, I had landed on the fact that I don't care. (laughs) I think the benefits still outweighed it um, like nutritionally, but I really thought that's what I was going to find when I was digging into this topic. And spoiler alert for that episode, that's not what I found at all, even reading all the meta-analyses and the very best science that we have on it. So that really shocked me. It kind of rocked my world and it affects how I look at everything now, like when I'm looking into a new topic. Some things that I really need to see to believe something definitively. So number one, I need to see isolated variables and like randomized control trial. So this is the kind of science where you're not studying associations and correlations. You are actually running a control where you have, you know, 1,000 identical mice and they get the exact same treatment as this other 1,000 group of identical mice and there's only one variable that's different. Randomized controlled trials that can be then replicated. So that's huge. Like, are they randomized and are they replicatable? So I really, really, really want to see that. A quick reminder, if you haven't listened to the Does Meat Cause Cancer episode, we don't have a lot of that kind of science in the health and human food space. And the reason is it's not ethical to do those kind of studies on people. You can't give a group of a thousand people, you know, one diet and a group of a thousand other people a different diet and one of them is suspected to cause a disease. Like you cannot ethically do that. And so we have to just study people as they already are in their existing (laughs) habitats and study associations. So clusters of trends. And then we have to see if they hold up among other clusters of humans. And so this is where stuff gets really like overblown and muddy. I always give the example that like shark attacks are positively associated. They are correlated with increased ice cream consumption, but that does not mean that shark attacks make people eat ice cream. It's just that summer, (laughs) summer is the time when these things happen. And so sometimes if you don't isolate the right variable or you're not focusing on the right thing, you can have what's called a spurious correlation. Okay. So The other thing that I really want to see if I'm going to believe something is like serious and actually poses a health risk. I want to see like the absolute risk, not the, you know, relative risk. And what I mean by that, so like if there's an advertisement that says this miracle drug decreases your risk of heart disease by 20%, like that sounds really big, but you need to know your baseline risk to assess what that 20% is actually referring to. So for example, if your baseline absolute risk without the medicine is 5% and the miracle drug lowers it to 4%, that would be 20%. But when you actually look at the real numbers and the real absolute decrease in risk, it's just not that compelling. It's like, okay, I mean, I still might take that drug. One in a hundred percentage points is still something, but it kind of takes the teeth out of like the miracle claims. And so advertisers, 
even sometimes studies themselves or, or articles about studies, they like to use the relative term because it's, it's bigger, it's more impressive, it feels more noteworthy. So these are all things that I want to be looking for when I assess, is this a good study? Also, like, what are the most recent studies? What are the meta-analyses? So like the studies of other studies, what are they saying? Okay, I have bored you, I know. But these caveats are really important as we start to dive into the topic of pesticides because I am going to tell you some stuff that it sounds pretty scary and I want us to keep our critical thinking hats on as I do that. So let's first talk about the what and the how. What are pesticides? Where did they come from? How are they applied? How widely are they used? Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. And today I want to tell you about our amazing Icelandic grass-fed lamb. So I was not actually a lamb lover before I started raising it. I had heard all this hubbub about Icelandic lamb and how good it was and how it could just be grass-fed. It was so tender and so mild. And I was actually raising my first Icelandic sheep before I had ever even tried it. And then when we got our first lamb chops back, I was just, I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) we got to grow the flock. Like this stuff is amazing. So since those years, the very early years, we have this amazing group of customers who just waits so loyally and with so much excitement for our lamb to come out. And lamb for us is actually a seasonal product. We're working to try to get it in stock year round, but we're still pretty small. So we just haven't been able to do that yet. And right now is one of the rare times that we have lamb in stock. I actually just posted a restock by the cut So we've got lamb chops, stew meat, ground lamb. We have these new amazing garlic and rosemary lamb bratwursts. They're a brand new product for us. They're just amazing. And we have sampler boxes. So if you're like, I don't know what I want, you pick. We've got boxes that come with seasoning, that come with recipes, and there's a couple different sizes and kind of iterations of that. So you can choose what fits you best. We also have a bundle called the hoof and horn, which is a lamb and beef combo box. It comes with ground lamb, ground beef, and then our beef and lamb seasonings, our cowgirl seasoning and our shepherd seasoning. So check out our bundles. Sometimes it's just easier to let us pick. And we have packed thousands of boxes now. We have a good sense of what folks will like. So we would love to stock you up on some regeneratively raised, rotationally grazed, no antibiotic, no hormones, all the good stuff, Icelandic, grass-fed lamb from our ranch to your table. So check it out at littlecreekmontana.com. So pesticides can be synthetic or they can be biological. So you can say pesticide and it doesn't mean you're necessarily talking about a synthetically created in a laboratory chemical. Maybe you've heard of diatomaceous earth. That would be a biological pesticide. It's ground up like mollusk shell or something and it can be used to kill bugs. So it's under the pesticide category. But for this episode, we really are going to focus on the synthetics, the man-made ones, and in general, the most popular man-made ones. Biological pesticides go way back. Soap has been used, arsenic, nicotine. But it was really World War II that changed everything. 
I've talked about this on the pod before, but like everything in food and science and life and health and lifestyle changed in the mid 20th century. Almost every graph of anything you ever look up will have this pivot point somewhere between like 1940 and 1965. It was just a time of massive technological change. So during World War II, scientists and chemical companies were coming up with weapons. And one of the weapons was nerve gases. And they found that organophosphates did the trick for nerve damage. And they were also could be used as insecticides. And so after the war, when, you know, demand for nerve gas decreased, these companies had a new way to market their products. The 40s to the 70s was kind of the Wild West of the pesticide era. You might be surprised or you might not be surprised. I mean, we have a lot less toxic crap floating around than we did in those years. Like maybe you've heard of the rivers that were so polluted they would actually light on fire. Like we just did not have environmental regulation. We had also just very, very, very high usage rates of these sprays. It was just the heyday. And then in the 70s, we have a rise of the environmentalist movement. We've got Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And the realization that some of these chemicals are having really adverse effects. So DDT. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away your DDT. Yeah, it turns out DDT bioaccumulates up the food chain. Like it gets more toxic as it goes up the food chain. And so the USDA banned it in 1972 after DDT was found in milk and foods. God. So today we are using different and chemicals that are considered to be overall much less toxic than what we were using back in the day. How are these chemicals applied? So I live in ag country and if you do too, you'll have seen this. Um, Generally, chemical is either applied through a ground sprayer, which is like this machine that kind of looks like a giant bug with wings that fan out and a spray comes out, kind of spraying down to the plants. It looks like it's something out of Star Wars. So that's one way. Pesticides can also be applied by airplanes. So maybe you've heard the term crop duster. That's what this is. The planes whiz over the fields. They spray targeted like only when they're flying actually over the fields and they fly really low. It's not like they're a thousand feet in the air, like they get scarily low sometimes to where you're like, you might hit that truck. (laughs) And then they turn around and do laps up and down the field until they're done. They choose very low wind days, as you can imagine, to carry this stuff out. It's well known that pesticides drift around. Today, the most common pesticides used are herbicides. The most common brand names are glyphosate, aka Roundup, atrazine, 2,4-D, and dicamba. But there are plenty, plenty, bajillions of others. And how widely are they used? Widely, 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 widely. This is a hard question to give you a really precise answer because there are so many categories of pesticides. Sometimes you'll read claims that overall pesticide use is down, and that's true kind of if you look just at fungicides and insecticides, like certain categories. But herbicide use is way, way, way up. We are still trending up as a country on our use of herbicide. What 
percentage of cropland gets sprayed. So it's going to vary tremendously by the type of crop. I'm going to quote Ag Daily. In the 2020 crop year, snap bean producers applied herbicide to 94% of their planted acres, insecticides on 64%, and fungicides on 55%. So that's just an example of one commodity crop, but you can see how the percentage of application is going to vary based on what type of pesticide we're talking about. For soybeans in 2020, herbicide was applied to 98% of all planted acres, fungicides 22%, and insecticides 20%. According to the USDA, U.S. corn, cotton, potatoes, soybeans, and wheat account for nearly two-thirds of pesticide quantities applied. So, like, it's not that every single crop is using these chemicals in equal measure. Like two-thirds of all these chemicals are going to five crops. Again, that's corn, cotton, potatoes, soybeans, and wheat. I'm not saying those are less safe foods. I'm just saying those are the ones that get the most, the bulk of the pesticide, and that's likely because those are some of our largest volume crops. Um, especially corn and soybeans, like these are just commodities that are kind of in everything and huge swaths of the Midwest are dedicated to those two crops. So, you know, it makes sense. Corn actually accounted for 46% of all pesticides by weight applied to the five major crops in 2014. And it took up a total of one third of all pesticide applications. So again, it's not like corn is getting sprayed X number of times more than other crops. It's just like we are growing a lot more corn than other crops. The second largest crop, soybeans, accounted for another 31% of pesticides applied in 2014. So just with corn and soybeans, we're at like the bulk of all the pesticides used just on those two crops. Now, important nuance. So sometimes herbicide is used to kill weeds around the crop. So let's say you planted some, you know, potatoes or some tomatoes and you've got a weed coming in. You might use an herbicide to kill the weed. And another way that herbicide is used is paired with genetically engineered seed. So for example, in the case of Roundup Ready Alfalfa, this is actually a genetically engineered seed that is resistant already to glyphosate. So you can just use Roundup glyphosate. You can spray it on the field and it's going to kill everything except the alfalfa. Another way that herbicides are used is actually to terminate the crop that you have planted. So for example, some crops like potatoes and I believe like lentils are actually terminated before harvest. And there's different reasons for that. I think in the case of potatoes, it's like if you keep the potato plant growing and let it go to seed, let it flower, I believe it's going to affect either the size or the nutrient quantity or the storability of those potatoes. So they're actually going to kill, terminate that crop itself with, a, with an herbicide before they start harvesting. So most commonly used in that type of application is a pesticide called Paraquat. So as I mentioned before, herbicides have the highest usage rates of the pesticides. 
And again, that's because of the rise of GMO and GE, genetically engineered crops. So it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that we used a lot more insecticide and fungicide, but because we have now bred crops to have kind of targeted resistance to not just certain pests, but also like certain funguses, we can kind of minimize the use of those other sprays. And it also, you know, they're Roundup ready, for example, like we, they're baked in (laughs) to this seed, like the company can sell you the seed and the spray to go with it. So our herbicide use is going way, way up. I think a lot of the folks in the kind of crunchy community They're like, well, we don't want spray of any kind, but we also don't like GMOs and we also don't want synthetic fertilizer. And also we want things to be no-till, but also nobody wants food to be more expensive. And I just want to remind you, if you're already like freaking out about our food system, the food system that we currently have right now does a few things well. It does high yield. It does quantity really, really well. And it does consistency really, really well. So like every time we go to the store, there's bread and it tastes the same as last week. The bananas taste the same as last week. They're always there. And even with food costs that are higher since COVID, quite a bit higher, greedy corporations, uh, we are still paying a fraction of our total household expenditures to food compared to what we were a hundred years ago as Americans. So I'm just saying, if you had a magic wand and and you're like, I just want to make It's so American farmers starting tomorrow can no longer use pesticides of any kind. We would have a lot more total crop failures. And if you're anti-pesticide and anti-GMO and anti-till and (laughs) anti-fertilizer, like, okay, but it's starting to sound like you're pro-food crisis. (laughs) Like, and I, I, I say that a little jokingly, but like, we have to be aware of what we're actually asking for, what the effects of what we're asking for would be when we're saying them, like, maybe you're just advocating for a radically different food system, which like, I'm, I'm with you, <laughs> I'm down, but we can't be naive about that. We need to, I think that any kind of change or decrease with uh, these synthetics would have to be like really gradual and replaced with something that wouldn't bankrupt farmers. <laughs> farmers are business people. Chemical is expensive. Like, they're not going to spray a field because they see one bug. Like, we are talking about crops, the monoculture crop system that we have in the U.S. and around the world. They deal with infestations. Insects, weeds, funguses. Infestations that will often choke out and kill the entire crop. So it's just not as simple as like a farmer going, you know, farmer, farmer, put away your DDT. <laughs> like, okay. And then, and then the farmer, farmer <laughs> goes bankrupt because his crop failed and the bank takes the farm and then it gets developed and sold to <laughs> absentee landowners. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> like, I think we have to be sympathetic to these forces and anyone that's even had a windowsill garden knows that like if you're growing foods you're going to deal with pests so i think monocultures exacerbate these challenges because it's like a huge identically genetically similar crop it's like a sitting duck for the very specific insects and funguses and weeds that love those type of conditions but pests are very much part of nature anyway (laughs) Back to application rates. So the bulk of pesticides are applied in the Americas, and by that I mean North and South America. 
and then Asia, and then Europe. Application rates in the Americas have actually more than doubled since the 90s. The rest of the world has increased much less, still increasing, but not as much as us. It's, it's the U.S. and Brazil that are really kind of coming in number one and number two in terms of how many pesticides we use. And I think, you know, in the case of the U.S., we grow a huge amount of the world's food. Um, so in some ways, that's, that's not surprising. But yeah, we do love our chemical here. And I want to take a minute to actually highlight some of the pros of pesticides. Like I've already talked about how they can save threatened crops. Like that's huge. But I also want to remind folks that pesticides don't just go on, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and wheat fields. They also apply in livestock operations. So for us, we battle different types of parasites and worms that love to kill sheep and horses and cattle. And there are all kinds of natural ways you can combat parasites. I'd argue those are the better long-term solutions, but that doesn't mean that where the rubber meets the road, we sometimes have to use dewormer to save a life. Like it's not, it would be cruel to tomorrow outlaw all the use of these insecticides and deparasitides. <laughs> The dewormers, like what that means is is dead livestock in the short term, at least. And while long term, we are breeding for parasite resistance and working to build herd immunity and doing the rotational grazing that interrupts larval cycles and keeping up on the mineral program, like doing all the stuff that naturally helps fight parasites, we can't let an animal suffer and die for something preventable. Uh, and it's the same for a farmer. You can't ask a farmer to like sit idly by while Palmer amaranth takes out an entire field and also his annual income at the same time. Like we need, we need real workable solutions if we want to be against these chemicals. Another pro to pesticides is that they can control invasive species. So there are noxious weeds that if they're allowed to spread could do massive, massive, massive damage to our landscape. Like remember we are in a globalized world. We've got Japanese beetles over here and Russian Siberian cheatgrass over here. Like we've got weeds from halfway around the world that we're fighting here in Montana. And if you can knock out this stuff when you see it, you could prevent a ton of not just crop loss, but habitat loss for, for wild animals. Like if you can do something to immediately control an invasive even something that might be poisonous, like I can get behind that. Like I also want to see a more long-term mitigation solution, but like I'm down. It's even been shown that when one farmer uses pesticides, the other farmers around benefit because essentially it's like creating herd immunity in, in a percentage of the population of humans that gets vaccinated. Like it has a similar effect where it kind of creates a temporary immunity for the farms around it. Another pro, as I mentioned previously, is that farmers are business people. Right. So like farmers don't invest in these chemicals for funsies. They invest in them because they work and they increase their crop yields. Farmers are not out here, vast majority of them, getting filthy rich. Profit margins in farming are terribly low. It's tough work that almost nobody wants to do. The median age of farmers is like 57. This is really, really hard work. And Farmers can get often a four-time financial return for every dollar they spend on a chemical crop management tool. So they're not just applying it just to apply it, just to be safe. They're doing it because in their experience, these chemicals bring benefits to their crops. 
Another huge pro outside of agriculture. So, you know, malaria, West Nile, Zika, all these horrible diseases spread by mosquitoes. One tool that we have against deadly insect-borne diseases is pesticides, insecticides. My crunchiness completely disappears when I am near a mosquito. I go from a girl who's like, I will only use beef tallow on my face, to an absolute fiend for DEET the minute I hear that buzzing in my ear. So I think it's really important for us to remember. Sometimes we we think about the tiny, tiny trace amounts of uh, pesticide that might be on our apples and oranges, but we're not thinking, you know, about more serious and more immediate threats that humans around the world face. Okay. What type of regulations are there for pesticide use? So I just have data on America. The rest of the world is often less regulated than us, except for Europe. They tend to be more regulated than us. We'll talk more about that later. But in America, it's federally mandated that you have to get an applicator license to apply commercial application of pesticide. The details are going to vary state by state, but you can't just go buy this stuff and spray it around like that scene in Zoolander where they get the gasoline out and they're like spraying it all over the gas station. Like, no. Um, you can get quite of a lot a lot of it just to spray in your yard, like when you're killing weeds. I mean, that's basically the same stuff. But in terms of large quantities, you need a license. And to get a license, you have to go to a seminar, usually a one or two day seminar that basically teaches you best practices and issues you a license. A major focus of these seminars, it's not like they're talking that much about like groundwater and pesticide drift and how to be, you know, a responsible environmental citizen. Like I kind of thought that's what it was, but Justin actually went through one of these seminars and he reported it's mostly like how to avoid getting pesticide poisoning yourself, like how to avoid getting it on your skin. Really importantly, how to dispose of it. You can't just like dump it on the ground or take it to the dump. Like, no, you have to dispose of it properly. And actually, I just got an email from our extension agent in our county who, if you live in an agricultural county, you have an extension agent. This is someone who is an agricultural resource for free for the entire county. It's so amazing. She just shared a pesticide pickup. It's going to be coming up near us in September where people can actually take their used and spent, you know, small leftover quantities of pesticides. You can take them to this place and they will dispose of them in an environmentally safe way, even if you don't even know what it is. Like, let's say you moved onto a farm and you found a bunch of mystery chemicals in the back of the barn, like you can take it in. So that's really cool. I'm going to spread the word about that. So that's what the seminar was, according to Justin. Maybe other states have a more robust licensing requirements, but that's basically how you get a pesticide applicator license. I've given you a ton of overview. If you've stuck with me this far, it's about to get interesting. I'm going to tell you now like the state of things, like how bad are pesticides really? What do we really actually know about pesticides in our food system? What levels are on our foods? Is there a difference between organic and conventional? Like what can we say for certain? about whether pesticides are affecting our health and the environment. Again, I'm sorry, I'm probably not going to tell you what you want to hear, but I'm trusting if you've made it this far, you're you're in the elite club and you can you can hang. Okay. A reminder that the dose makes the poison. So, I really recommend following 
the account at Food Science Babe. She's on Instagram and TikTok. She's a consultant. She's a scientist. She does really great educational videos. She's very anti-fear-mongering. Sometimes I don't always like to hear what she <laughs> wants to say, but it's she does an amazing, amazing job reminding us that almost everything in our lives is a toxic chemical at some dose. And she will explain how certain chemicals that sound so bad are actually less toxic than, let's say, caffeine. Like if you had an equal amount of that chemical and caffeine, caffeine would kill you first. Like even water is lethal at a certain dose. And she often says, if you just see a random fear-mongering video talking about like glyphosate is on all the fruit, if they are not talking about a dose, it is likely information that should be treated with suspicion. From a recent Forbes article, the encouraging news is that our produce supply is very safe from a pesticide residue perspective. 99.85% of the residues that were detected are below the already conservative tolerances that are set by the EPA. There is an organization called the Environmental Working Group, the EWG, and they take USDA data and they, they're the ones behind the dirty dozen list. And here's what the Forbes article says about that. That analysis is egregiously misleading because it essentially counts all detections equally, ignoring what chemical it is, at what level it was detected, and how that compares to the crop chemical-specific EPA tolerances. So I'm going to share the link to that Forbes article in the show notes. If you want to click it up right now, there's all these great infographics that actually will show you you know, the USDA testing vegetables, testing fruit, like testing different crops, telling you where the safe threshold is for consumption of pesticides on those crops and where most of the samples tested. So I got to tell you, again, you might not believe me, but most of the samples tested were between 20 to 100 times lower than tolerance and even up to a thousand times or more lower than what the EPA has considered an acceptable tolerant level. So let's talk about conventional food versus organic. Again, I'm going to quote from Forbes. This is a really good article. Many consumers think that organic means that no pesticides are used. That is not the case. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But yeah, that is not the case. There is a rather extensive list of natural pesticide options that are allowed, and natural does not always mean safer, despite what decades of marketing have tried to tell us. The other thing that is really interesting is that when the USDA tests for pesticide residue, their residue testing program is not set up to be able to detect most of the organic pesticides. So things like sulfur, copper, salt, paraffin oils, like they are just simply not testing for these things most of the time. The USDA has just chosen not to do that. I guess it's kind of burdensome and expensive to do those tests. So you will often hear folks say that there are fewer residues on organic, and that might be true. There's certainly way fewer residues of synthetic pesticides because they're not allowed to use them, although there are a small number of synthetic pesticide residues detected on most organic crops, and that may just be because of, of pesticide drift. But it's not a complete picture to just say there's lower amounts of pesticides on organic um, because they're not testing for a lot of these natural, so-called natural, pesticides. So again, here's the TLDR, <laughs> the too long, didn't read, too long, didn't listen or whatever. 
organic farmers can and do use pesticides. Another aside is like a lot of farmers are both organic and conventional. Like they will have both types of crops and they just kind of rotate them and they play the market and they figure out, okay, I'm going to put this into a five-year like transition to organic program because that's where the market is going. And they're going to use very similar practices on both fields, but they're just like switching out, you know, which pesticides they use. Like I'm not trying to slander organic, but these are facts. Uh, But the pesticides they can use in organic, they must be of biological origin. And another reminder, that does not mean they they are safer or better, even though my brain like really, really, really wants to feel that way. It's just like, I have to remind myself, lead is natural. Arsenic is natural. Like lots of natural things are highly, 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 highly toxic. So how are pesticides affecting our health? I'm going to talk about two main pesticides in this next section, paraquat and glyphosate. So paraquat is one of those banned in Europe chemicals, which makes it sound extra scary. It also has like a scary name, paraquat. It just sounds like some kind of toxic orange juice or something that would cause nerve damage, like marketing, (laughs) get on it. Um, Yeah, so it's banned in Europe. You can make it in Europe. They have paraquat factories over there, but you just can't use it over there. In the U.S., we are permitted to use it. And there's a couple reasons why it's banned in Europe. So from the New York Times, paraquat is one of scores of pesticides prohibited in Europe but sold outside of it. In 2013, the EU imposed a moratorium on a widely used group of insecticides made by Syngenta and Bayer, the German giant, that were linked to a decline in bee colonies. Um, Quick note on that, the EU tends to be more proactive than we are, like, and they seem to require less evidence to ban stuff. So they banned these pesticides in part because of the bee colony collapse disorder. Now the science, like 10 years later, is saying that colony collapse disorder is a lot more complicated. It's not just pesticides. According to the EPA, there are many causes that are causing CCD, and that includes an invasive mite, a gut parasite, and a virus that are affecting the bees. Yes, pesticides, and also stress from transportation, from providing pollination services, changes to overall habitat, inadequate forage and nutrition, like, but, 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 like, as always, it's complicated. So it's not like paraquat was directly, you know, causing colony collapse disorder. There's another reason that it got banned in Europe, and that's because paraquat has been linked to Parkinson's disease. So notice how I'm saying has been linked. Like rumblings started, there was this association, they were seeing a correlation between paraquat use and a link to Parkinson's. And in the EU, that is pretty much good enough. They're more of the stance of like, let's find out later, let's ban it now, and we'll figure out the details later. So, okay, here's what the research says about paraquat and Parkinson's. And I didn't know this. Parkinson's is not that heritable of a disease. Like I always thought it was 100% genetic, but it's not. Only around 15% of people that get Parkinson's have a family link. So it's it's really suspected that there are different environmental causes that can contribute maybe with genetic factors that lead to it. So research has been showing an increasing association for several decades between paraquat and Parkinson's. And it has really reached a fever pitch 
in the last couple years. This is from the New York Times. Quote, the data is overwhelming, said Dr. Samuel M. Goldman, an epidemiologist in San Francisco. I'm not a farmer. I don't need to kill weeds, but I have to believe there are less dangerous options out there. Freya Camel, a scientist with the NIH who has also studied this topic, says she found the breadth of research about as persuasive as these things get. It's not a slam dunk. It never is, Dr. Camel said. But to me, the weight of the evidence shows there's a relationship. And personally, she added, she believes Paraquat should be banned. Now, the article goes on to clarify, the scientists are not saying Paraquat would be the sole cause of Parkinson's. And we've talked about this before, like the human brain, like we want things to be so simple, like, okay, this causes this. Okay. But health in reality is a very complicated matrix and it is nearly impossibly hard to isolate variables like that when we're dealing with humans and our messiness and our poor recall of our own lives. But that said, when you have associations that are really trending and increasing and kind of replicatable, and what they do is they actually study, you know, farming populations and people in like land management, people that are around these chemicals a lot, they can see these associations emerging in different areas around the world. So again, quoting the New York Times, a 2011 study led by the Parkinson's Institute and the National Institute of Health surveyed farmers and their spouses in Iowa and North Carolina. Those studied were two and a half times more likely to develop Parkinson's if they used Paraquat or retinone. A 2012 study found that those who used Paraquat and who also had a certain genetic variation were 11 times more likely to develop Parkinson's. So again, let's say your baseline risk, I'm just making up numbers, to develop Parkinson's is 1%, so two and a half times, oh my gosh, am I going to have to do math? Um, but that would be like 2.5% that would of that would be um, the new risk if you are going to be around Paraquat. It's not saying that if you're around this stuff, you're definitely going to get Parkinson's. I just want to be so clear, but we're seeing kind of an association between this disease and this chemical. Something else about Paraquat that is really kind of especially creepy, um, it's really toxic if you consume it. So this is actually different than Roundup glyphosate. Not that I think you should go chug the stuff, but I've heard farmers talk about the the Roundup salesmen that used to come around like 40, 50 years ago. And they would go to town halls and they would gather the farmers together and they would say, it's so safe, you can drink it. And they'd pour it into a glass and they'd drink it. Paraquat is not like that. It's like you drink some, you die. It's actually a method of suicide in some areas. And that's another reason it's been banned. So when South Korea banned it, their suicide rate dropped 10%. Don't worry though, guys. Syngenta, who owns Paraquat, did their own internal investigation. And in 2016, they found these mounting associations between Paraquat and Parkinson's to be insufficient. They just don't see the link that others have found. Their in-house scientists said, I think the volume of data suggests a link is unlikely. You can't find a consistent association to suggest that Paraquat is particularly important. Now, I know I'm sounding cynical, and maybe you're feeling that way too. I tend to be cynical of all multinational corporations, and we might be right, but 
I want to reiterate again, like how careful we need to be when studies are just not that clear, when they only show associations and causations, like the data really can be weak, even if we want to believe it. Sometimes that's not what the data says. This kind of weak association is exactly what got red meat put on the IARC carcinogen list, like really, really weak associations. I'm not saying I'm for paraquat. I just want to be flexing the same critical muscle when examining things where I have a bias. From the New York Times, Dr. Vikram Karana, a neurologist at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute who studies Parkinson's, says the body of research drawing a link between Paracrot and Parkinson's had converged to make a fairly convincing argument that it's truly an environmental exposure that can either increase the risk of Parkinson's or collaborate with other factors, including genetic factors. So I think that's important. Like, There's just a whole mix of stuff happening. And if you're genetically predisposed and you're around this stuff, that's where your risk is going to increase. Now let's get into Roundup, aka glyphosate, which is owned by Bayer, who bought Monsanto. So it used to be Monsanto's Roundup. They bought Monsanto and kind of dissolved the company. Now it's all Bayer. Glyphosate has faced over 20,000 lawsuits. 20,000, like well over 20,000. Glyphosate is the most widely used agricultural chemical in history. And unlike Paraquat, it is, quote, a probable carcinogen, according to the IARC. You guys know, if you listen to the Does Meat Cause Cancer episode, you know I don't like the IARC's carcinogenic list. I think it's poorly put together. It's confusing. The list acts, it looks like it's measuring the degree of toxicity of cancerishness, but that's not what it's measuring. It's measuring the degree of scientific confidence. So the example would be if we found that if you eat a thousand oranges, it increases your cancer risk of one type of cancer by 1%, but you could replicate that consistently anywhere you tried that, that study, that would elicit a very, very, very high degree of confidence. And oranges would be put on the number one, red, dark red, you know, new, new, new list, um, you know, definitely carcinogenic to humans. Now, does that mean that oranges in our lives are carcinogenic? No, because no one's eating a thousand of them. Like I'm making an extreme example, but that is what this list is measuring. And that's why it's really confusing. So glyphosate is on it. It's only in the probably carcinogenic category. It's not in the for sure category. It's on the same, uh, the same category with red meat, high temperature frying, night shift work, and being a hairdresser. So yeah, like, do I recommend high temperature frying or being exposed to Roundup? Like, I'll, I'll take my <laughs> chances with the cast iron pan. They're not saying all these things are of equal carcinogeneity. So I just, this is my bone to pick with this list, and I will never mention it without adding these caveats. So one of the reasons, as I mentioned before, that Bayer's Roundup is so popular is that Bayer is selling not just the herbicide, but the seed to go with it. So Roundup-ready, genetically engineered seed. Um, and just a side note, you know, about Bayer buying Monsanto, like, that's what these big corporations do. They like to merge and eat each other's tails and consolidate the market as much as they're legally allowed to do. So that's that's what's going on as always. Another kind of inconvenient truth about Roundup 
is that lots of farmers use Roundup in their no-till crop systems. So lots of folks just kind of out in the world think that no-till, like if you hear someone has a no-till farm, meaning they don't plow the soil, means they also don't spray it. Like people think no-till is kind of a synonym for regenerative or organic. And that is not even a little bit true. Like not at all. I once made a TikTok about it and nobody in the comments believed me. They were like, bullshit. No-till means all this other stuff. I'm like, okay, like where did you read that? (laughs) Like that is abjectly false. And in fact, if you don't till, you likely spray because spraying is one of the only feasible ways at scale to kill, to terminate a crop on a large scale. Yeah. Using herbicides. So Roundup can be used in systems that are also decreasing tillage. And depending on what your goals are, maybe it's, um, you know, decreasing soil erosion and keeping root structures intact. Like these are things that are important for environmental health. You may find that an herbicide can help get you there. So this is some nuance. That's just something for you to chew on. Okay. Going back to the New York Times article. And again, everything is linked in the show notes. So feel free to read these for yourselves. I would recommend it. Bayer continues to maintain that decades of scientific studies have repeatedly shown glyphosate to be safe. And they're actually backed up by regulators around the world, in the EU, the United States, Canada, Australia, like for the most part have agreed with that. As recently as August of 2019, the EPA issued a ruling saying that any product labels that said glyphosate caused cancer was a false claim. So that said, um, Bayer basically settled a nearly $10 billion lawsuit against thousands of plaintiffs who say that Roundup in part contributed to them getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The settlement, of course, contains no admission of guilt. When does it ever? Part of the settlement will take that funding and set up an independent panel to try and determine whether and how much Roundup actually causes cancer. So, like, this is not an answer that we actually really have yet. Again, we are we are back to associations. So, why did Bayer settle this lawsuit if they're not admitting guilt? Um, we can only speculate. I think we have to assume that this wasn't actually that bad of a financial hit for them. The Monsanto name was getting drugged through the mud, letting the suit go on. A lot of negative information came out uh, during the legal proceedings. According to the New York Times, again, Monsanto's aggressive tactics to influence scientific opinions and discredit critics undercut the company's credibility. It had taken aim at hundreds of activists, scientists, journalists, politicians, and even musicians. Bayer announced in 2020 that it would separately spend up to $400 million to settle claims stemming from another Monsanto chemical, Dicamba. Bayer also put aside $820 million to settle long-standing lawsuits related to toxic chemicals in the water supply, known as PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, that were banned in the United States four decades ago. I don't know, this always just blows my mind how this much money is is practically only a line item for these companies. Like they're putting the annual budget and they're just like settling the lawsuits. Like that's just that's just part of the budget. We're still not really closer to answering the question does Roundup cause cancer? And again, it's frustrating. It's it's like Paraquat and Parkinson's. 
At most, it's associated. Roundup is associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Again, not all cancers, just seemingly that one. And the data is really, really mixed. The greatest potential exposure is among farm workers and gardeners that use glyphosate-based herbicides and those who live near farms, manufacturing plants, etc., etc. Glyphosate is found in very, very low trace levels on many foods and vegetables at levels that the EPA safe are far below any any risks. You would have to eat like an ungodly amount of apples, let's just say, to get even near the level of what would be considered an unacceptable daily dose. Some studies have found it's not carcinogenic at all. Some studies have found an association between increased cancer risks and higher levels of exposure. It's just, this has been a really hard thing to untangle. One concerning thing, though, was in a national health survey released by the CDC, observed detectable levels of glyphosate in 80% of urine samples tested. So don't love that. Don't love that. Bayer said, let's see what Bayer says. They said finding traces of glyphosate in urine does not mean there's a health risk, which I'm just like, who had to put that statement out? Like, what, <laughs> what do they pay their PR company monthly? They say those traces correspond to exposures that are less than 0.14% of the US EPA's safety threshold. Okay. But other scientists are really concerned about that and have questioned whether the current safety thresholds are too high. One scientist, Robin Massange, his own research has said he found glyphosate can induce DNA damage and changes in liver metabolism at doses up to 100 times lower than the permitted levels. He added that combining glyphosate with the other ingredients and herbicides, so remember, there's active ingredients, and that's generally what we're studying, but there's other ingredients in them as well, so that can actually lead the final product to be more toxic than the active ingredient alone. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I wish there was there we weren't standing on such shaky ground with this stuff. Like It's really, really deeply unsatisfying. The National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in the U.S., this is a government-funded institute, they've been leading an agricultural health study since 1993, where they study 89,000 farmers and their spouses. And they're looking at health trends. You know, people that are highly exposed to pesticides, what adverse health outcomes are these groups facing at greater rates than the general public? They've found the same stuff that other studies have found, these kind of weak associations, paraquat to Parkinson's, Pesticides in general can be associated with increased thyroid disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and especially that's true for children. But here is the trouble repeatedly. When you actually get into the studies, these associations are just, they're so weak. They're so, 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 so weak. And the reason we hear about Paraquat and Roundup the most is because those are the strongest associations we have. And again, even those associations, it's like in only some circumstances with certain genetic predisposition and only if you're around it every day for 30 years. Like we're seeing where the pesticides may be a part of the root cause, but they're not directly causing cancer or different diseases. Again, I'm sorry. This is probably not what you want to hear. I, it's not what I want to hear. I'm just, I'm sorry to be the bearer of this news, but we can't be hashtag believe science people like sometimes. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to believe me at all. I'm not saying that you can feel however you want to feel. I'm just saying like 
you, you're going to have to choose to feel that way while also understanding this is what our data currently says. Where I land on this, like after hours and hours of research, trying to find something so solid to point to, to say like, this stuff is horrible, noxious, and should be banned tomorrow. I just am of two minds of it, ultimately, like, or more accurately, I, my, my head feels one way and my heart feels another. My head says, the data is not very strong here. The vast majority of people are not exposed to anywhere close to levels that are considered by regulatory bodies unsafe. Health is a complicated matrix. I still believe the stuff that we do every day, the big stuff, sleep, sun exposure or lack thereof, you know, our minerals, our, our overall nutrients we're getting, balanced diet, cultivating joy, social connections, rest, adequate exercise. Like I still believe these are the biggest things that we can do for our health. And sometimes I feel like focusing on the toxins that are in everything, you know, getting obsessed, it just, it can be distracting. It can be kind of a red herring. It can be a way to get hyped up and feel scared. So that's, that's what my head is, is telling me. And my head is also telling me like, be realistic about our food system. Like, do you want to pay more for corn because half of the crop got choked out by some invasive? Like, no, I don't want to pay more for corn. So it feels a little bit like a shut up and sing thing where it's like, all right, if you don't have any good solutions, then pipe down. Like, and I don't, I don't have good solutions for this stuff because ultimately a lot of these challenges, like things like erosion from tillage and you know, pesticides and, and the, the effects of synthetic fertilizer, like building up in waterways. These are somewhat on some level, kind of a necessary evil of monocultures and monocultures is what makes our food system so big and efficient and consistent. And so while I advocate for local food all day long, that's not a solution that can step in tomorrow. We would need to invent different harvesting equipment if we're going to move away from monocultures. We would have to have more agricultural laborers. Our, our labor costs would be hugely, hugely more expensive. Um, the only even really somewhat industrial level viable sort of kind of solution to, to pesticides that I've seen and herbicides specifically is these new like robots that can kill weeds with lasers they're super precise, but even now, like they're not big enough. They're not fast enough. They're kind of only applicable in certain types of fields, but maybe that could be something to watch for the future, at least for the herbicide. Like maybe we could find a manual robotic way to do that that wouldn't cause more labor. Okay. So that's, that's what my head is saying. My heart just isn't in it. <laughs> and I know it's hypocritical to look at really, 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 really weak associations between meat and colorectal cancer and say there's nothing to it. And then to look at really, 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 really weak associations between pesticides and like, one pesticide and one type of cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and say there's something to it. But that's where I'm at. I'm just going to be hypocritical. I guess the difference for me is how new these chemicals are compared to something like red meat that you know, humans survived as part of their diet for hundreds of thousands of years, how incentivized massive corporations are to keep the profits rolling in, to keep calling them safe, to compromise scientists. But like, ultimately, I want to be somebody who can be influenced by, by data. And I, I don't feel influenced in this case. I just have to be honest. I just don't feel influenced. 
I respect the heck out of people who feel differently than I do, like Food Science Babe. I mean, she has so many highlight slides talking about how glyphosate is perfectly safe, perfectly, perfectly, perfectly safe. And I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm just saying I can't, I can't make myself say it. My heart won't do it. It may not make actual scientific sense, but I'm going to be washing my vegetables extra thoroughly after this episode. And I don't want you to walk away from this episode feeling more scared about food. I honestly, I don't feel that way. I find all this information to kind of take the edge off my anxieties. Like, oh my gosh, the number of cucumbers I've eaten without washing. Like, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. But ultimately, I just don't end up with a good taste in my mouth about these chemicals. And I guess I'll just continue to advocate for ways we can minimize their use while keeping our food system at a you know high production and consistent. I just feel that we may be too close to it all now. It may be too recent. We may not be looking in the right places to see all the unintended cascade of consequences that these chemicals, natural or you know synthetic, can do to our water cycle, to our soil, and to our gut microbiomes. I always go back to the fact that glyphosate is technically an antibiotic, and I find that so, so interesting. I mean, we know just with human antibiotics, and I'm not saying they're, it's exactly the same, but we know they take out some good stuff and they take out some bad stuff. And antibiotics, just the nature of them is kind of that you're weighing those pros and cons all the time. I don't think anybody would ever say, you know, these pesticides only do one thing really, really well and there's no other intended consequences. And I just, I just think that as time goes on, we tend to unfold ways in which things were more damaging to the earth than we realized at the time. Like, I just don't think we have the greatest track record with this stuff. And so I'm cynical and I'm suspicious of it. And if there are reasonable alternatives to these chemicals, I think we should pursue them. Even if the only real benefit is keeping money out of Bayer's pockets, I'm down. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. If you want to support more of these psychotic late night deep dives, please join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash choosewiselypodcast. Do you have an episode idea or a question or a comment? Send it on over to choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and get alerted of new episodes at choosewiselypodcast. And please take five seconds to rate and review. We are so grateful. 